but it's 89. <laughs> Psalm 89. And he was right that it has 52 verses, but we are very fortunate because these 52 verses uh, go pretty quickly. You can read out loud the 52 verses in about 8 minutes. If I speak 2 minutes on each verse, we could be finished in about an hour and 20 minutes. If I spend 20 seconds on each verse, we can be done in 35 minutes. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay? So you got Psalm 89. And uh, let me remind everybody, if you didn't uh, get the email, we were supposed to meet at the country, uh, at the Lakewood Country Club for lunch. Uh, that's been canceled. The country club said they couldn't handle the number of people that had signed up. We had 55 people sign up. And they said, we're going to have to put you in your own room, set up your own buffet, and we're going to have to charge you 24 bucks. And so we basically just canceled it out. So we're, we're sorry for that, but it was just one of those mix-ups that happened, and uh, we'll try to do something in the future somewhere in the future. Okay, Psalm 89. You ready? I'm not rushing through this, because you're not, we don't have to rush through it. And you're going to see that we don't have to rush through it. Psalm 89 is a very interesting psalm because uh, it's a combination of praise and complaint. The first half of the psalm is praise toward God. The second half of the psalm is a complaint to God. Okay? So here's how we are going to divide it. Section number one is going to be verses 1 through 37. 1 through 37. And here the psalmist praises God for his faithful covenant, uh, his, his covenant faithfulness, especially to King David. Now what that means is that God has established a covenant or a contract or an agreement with the nation of Israel. And he says, I am always going to meet your needs, I'm going to come to your rescue whenever that is needed. You can trust me to always show you mercy and loving kindness and compassion. That's the agreement or the covenant that I make with you. So what we have in this first 37 verses is the psalmist praises God for his covenant faithfulness. And especially, and specifically, his covenant to King David. David is a man after his own heart and they have this special relationship. And so this section deals uh, mainly with the past. Uh, how God has blessed Israel through King David. Okay. And we could call this praises about the golden days or the golden years of Israel. Okay. That's section one. And section number two covers verses 38 through 51. And here, the psalmist excoriates God. He starts complaining to God. That God has abandoned his covenant, if you can believe such a thing. After making these promises, Lord, it seems like you've abandoned us. What's going on here? And he's very angry. And uh, this section deals with the present. In other words, in the past, the golden years, everything was going well. You kept all your promises. But now, in the time that the psalmist is writing, something's gone haywire. And it seems like God has abandoned his promise. And in the present days... Uh, the nation of Israel is in a dark time. 
So section one, Israel is in a bright time. Section two, Israel is in a dark time. Now, this is written, we believe, sometime after the death of King David. Uh, <clears throat> the nation of Israel was under a single king, King Saul, under a single king, King David, under a single king, King Solomon. And then after Solomon's death, the nation divided in two, between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, sort of like in the United States when there was a northern group and a southern group, you know, and they were at odds with each other. And uh, things aren't going well in the nation of Israel. And David has died, and other kings have replaced him in the land of Judah. And most of these kings have been bad. And so God has basically taken his blessing off the nation. And the nation is at a very low point. So anyway, that's what's happening. So, and then the last verse, which is verse 52, is a doxology. And that doxology, you'll see it says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Verse 52, amen and amen. And then that closes out book number 3. And then Psalm 90 begins book number 4 of the Psalms. And you can see that in your Bible. There's probably a section that says book 4. Psalms 90 through 106. Now, the major feature of Psalm 89 is called parallelism. You think of parallel bars, they are two bars that go, you know, they're with equal distance apart going in the same direction. They are true, truly parallel. This psalm has a feature called parallelism. And that is where line one of a verse says one thing, and line two of that same verse says the exact same thing. It's parallel to the first sentence, but it says it in different words. Okay, that's called parallelism. I'm going to be pointing this out to you for maybe the first ten verses, but it happens in almost every verse. And you'll get so used to it that I won't have to point it out anymore. And we'll, once we get past like 10 verses, we're going to zoom through this thing. Because really, instead of being 52 verses, it's like being 26 verses. The second half of every verse is the same thing as the first half. That's what makes it so easy to go through this psalm. So you ready? So that was just all introduction to get us ready to do what we're going to call a running commentary. And here's how I define a running commentary. You all do the running. <laughs> And we're going to run through this verse, and I'm going to do the commentary. It's a running commentary, okay? So you ready? Okay, section number one, the psalmist praises God for being a covenant keeper. And uh, he starts out by stating his intent. So look at verse one. The psalmist says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Now that word, mercies, is the co covenant word that means loving kindness or compassion or whatever. So, that's line one. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Line number two. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Line one and line two basically say the same thing. So, the psalmist says he has faith that God's <coughs> promises will never fail. See? Notice what he says there in verse one. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will make known your faithfulness for what? generations. He said, that's my intent. My intent is to keep praising you because 
You're always faithful. So I can state up front, I'm going to always be praising you. Okay, well, you're going to see how that changes a little bit later. Okay, the reason, he says, verse 2, For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. That's line number one. Okay, line number two, your faithfulness shall be established in the very heavens. That's line number two. Above earth, in other words, heaven is where eternity is. It goes on forever and ever. Line 1 and line 2 say exactly the same thing. Same words in verse 1 as in verse 2. The words mercy and faithfulness, as you see. Now look at God's response. God begins to speak now. Look what he says. I have made a covenant with my chosen. That's line number 1. I have sworn to my servant who? Okay. So, line number one, I've made a covenant with my chosen. Who's he's chosen? David. See that? Line one says one thing. Line two says the same thing with just different words. Okay. So this is God speaking now. So God has made a covenant or an agreement with David. Verse number four. Speaks to David. Your seed, David, I will establish forever. All your descendants I will establish forever. That's line number one. Look at line number two. And build up your throne for all generations. There will always be a descendant of David on his throne. And God is going to establish that throne forever. Okay? And then it says, Selah. Now that is a promise that God has made to David. See that? Isn't that what it says in verse 4? God says, I will establish your seed, that's David, forever. I will build up your, that's David's throne, for all generations. That's called the Davidic covenant. Now, you know the story of David, how God chose David. Remember, he sent the prophet Samuel to hunt for a future king. And he goes to the household of Jesse, and he says, bring all your sons out and line them up. God's going to choose a king out of one of these sons. And he lines them up, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And Samuel says, this one, Lord? This one, Lord? Six, seven, this one, Lord? Samuel says, am I hearing God, Lord? Jesse, do you have any other sons? Well, I got a little kid out in the field with the sheep. Well, bring him in. So he brings in his little son, David, and God says, that's the one. And he tells Samuel to anoint David, this kid, as king over Israel. He's going to be God's chosen. He's the one that's chosen in verse 2 or 3 there. Okay? So you know that story. But that's not the end of the story. Then God speaks to another man named Nathan. And I want to show you this story, which is an important story. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is how you'll know we're going to go through this passage pretty quickly. Because I'm actually turning to another passage. It's going to take me two minutes. Right? So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And look at verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. Uh, and if you look up at like verse 2, you'll see Nathan's name. And Nathan is the one who's carrying this message on behalf of God to David. So look what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 
in verse 12. It says this, And when your days are are fulfilled, he's saying this to David, through Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, meaning after you've died, I will set up your seed after you, and I will come, uh, who will come from your body, from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will forever, I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy, God says, that's that covenant word, my loving kindness, my compassion, shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. That's the Davidic covenant right there. God makes a promise that David's seed will endure forever. So go back to Psalm 89, and you see how this fits in. So look at verse 4 again. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne for generations. Do you see that? That is the Davidic promise that we just read in 2 Samuel. So just think about that. Say a lot. Take a moment and think about that kind of promise. Wouldn't you like God to make a promise like that to you? That your kids are going to grow up and be successful. You know? And then their kids are going to grow up and be successful. And when someone looks at you and follows the line of your descendants, it is a success story, one right after the other. That's the kind of deal that God has made with King David. So the psalmist in these first four verses speaks of his intent to praise God. And now he gives us the specifics of what he's going to praise God for. So first of all, he's going to praise God's majesty. Look at verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. That's The heavens are the angels. That's line number one. Your faithfulness also will be praised in the assembly of the saints, or the holy ones. That's the angels. So he says, first of all, angels praise you. Why do angels praise him? Look at verse 6. For in the heavens, for, for who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? And the answer is what? No one. And he's talking here about angels. Are there, is there any angels that can be compared to the Lord? And the answer is no. There's no one. And look at this. Who among the sons of the mighty, that's the angels again, just another way of saying it, can be likened to the Lord? And the answer is what? No one can be likened to the Lord. So that's why these angels are praising God. God is so much higher than they are. See, that's verse 6. Look at verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Okay. And again, that doesn't mean here on earth, I don't think. I think this means in the holy ones who are in heaven. God is to be greatly feared in the assembly of the saints. And that's line number one. And to be held in reverence by all those who are what? Around him. See, So that is 
uh, shows the respect that the angelic forces have for God. Look at verse number 8. O Lord, God of hosts, that's the heavenly host, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. So here we have, who is like the, the Lord? Who is mighty like you, O Lord? And the answer is, no one is mighty like the Lord. And so here we see all this praise that's going to God, because no one else is like God. Now we see that God is praised for not only his majesty, but God's praised also for his mastery. Look at verse 9. You rule the raging sea. There's him. He's the master of the sea. When the waves rise, line number one, when the waves rise, you still them. So here's an example of God. Can you think of a time when God ruled the sea? Mastered the sea? Like the Red Sea. When Israel went into the Promised Land, the Jordan River opened up. God mastered the sea. He can stop the sea from raging, and he can... Open it up. We also know somebody in the New Testament that did things like this. Who was that? And Jesus. Look at verse 10. You have broken Rahab in pieces. Now who's Rahab? Egypt. Egypt from last week. Remember that? You've broken Egypt in pieces. That's why we know the sea in verse 9 represents the Red Sea in the Exodus. Because in verse 10 he said, You've broken Rahab, that's Egypt, in pieces as one who is slain. That's line number one. You've scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So you can see that. So just remember, line one and line two basically say the same thing with different words. So now every time you read it, just think about that. Verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world in its fullness. See, that would be heaven enter the world in its fullness. You have founded them. He's Lord over everything. Verse 12. The north and the south, you've created them. And look at this. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. So here is the north and the south. That could mean directions, north and south. Tabor, we know, is a 1,900-foot mountain is located uh, west of the Jordan. We know that Hermon is a 9,000 feet mountain that is located east of Jordan. So he could be saying in verse 12, or as it's verse 12, the north, the south, you've created them, you know, west and east, you re rejoice in your name. Or he could be saying north and south, high and low, you created them, you created a lower mountain, Paper, you create a higher mountain, Herman, something along that line. What he is saying, though, is that God is master over all of creation. Through verse 13. You have a mighty arm. Line one. Strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants to do. No one sees. He can you know, level mountains. He can create mountains. He can do whatever he wants. So, Praising God for his majesty, praising God for his mastery, and look, praising God for his morality. Look at verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
God's government is always run correctly. Mercy and truth go before your faith. God always does the right thing in his kingdom. Verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the joyful Sarah. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. God favors certain people in his kingdom who live according to his standard. Verse 16. In your name they rejoice all day long. In your righteousness they are exalted. Now notice in verse 16 he says, In your name they rejoice all day long. Now, it's interesting when you look at the psalm how God is described, what his name is. If you look in verse 1, notice his name is Lord. Do you see that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see it again in verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Look, all caps. You see that? In verse 6, you see that same word, all caps, twice. Down in verse 8. O Lord. Look, all caps. You see that? And then again in verse 8. O Lord, all caps. Then in verse 15, it says, at the end of verse 15, they walk, O Lord, all caps in the light of your countenance. And now verse 16, in your name, that is God's name, L-O-R-D in all caps, which is His covenant name. They walk in the name of your covenant. They do what they do because they trust you, Lord. You've made a covenant with Israel and they are now going to follow your direction because you are the God of the covenant. You are capital L-O-R-D, which in the Hebrew is Yahweh or Jehovah. And if you've been with us, you'll know that when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, Moses said, who should I say sent me? And it was what? I am that I am the Lord. Yahweh sent you. That's basically how God identified himself. So this is God's covenant name. You glory in your... And then verse 17 says this. For you are the glory of their strength. And your favor, our in your favor, our horn, that's the Jewish people, God's people, our horn, our authority, our strength is exalted. They reflect God's strength and God's authority and they live that way. And that's why everything is going well. This is the golden days for Israel at this point. Verse 18. For our shield belongs to the Lord. That means our defense belongs to the Lord. Now who is our shield? Well, look at line number two. And our what? King to the Holy One of Israel. So the king is their shield. The king is their, their defense. That's King David. King David walks according to the Lord. God stands with King David. And King David defeats nations. He's the perfect king. And because they walk in the name of Jehovah, the covenant God. Now what happens next is that the psalmist recalls history recalls the history of the Davidic covenant. Look at verse 19. Then you spoke in a vision to your holy one, or holy ones, and that was Nathan. That's what we just read in 2 Samuel. God spoke in a vision to Nathan and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. 
That would be King David. Look at verse 20. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. That's when Samuel anointed King David. See that? Whom my hand has established, and my arm shall strengthen him. So here is this Davidic covenant that God makes with this chosen one, David. Look at verse 22. The enemy shall not outwit him. Line one. Nor the son of wickedness afflict him. That's King David. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness, God says, and my mercy, my compassion, loving kindness, shall be with him. And my name, capital L-O-R-D, his horn, his strength, his authority, shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. Ah, God was over the sea. God was over the rivers. But he has an earthly representative now. Just like he had an earthly representative back in the Exodus. His name was Moses. Remember him? God said, raise up the staff. And when he raised it up, what happened? Who opened it? Moses or God? But he did it through <coughs> Moses raising the staff. So here's God, the master of the sea, masters of the rivers, and now he calls David that. And David is the one who's going to go over land and sea and conquer nations and, and be God's representative on earth, basically. So that's what you have there in verse 20. Five. He shall cry to me, verse 26. You are my father! That comes right out of 2 Samuel that we read. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So David has this relationship with God as a son to his father. God calls David my son. And that's very unusual in the Old Testament for an individual to have a relationship with God as a father. Verse 27. Also, I will make him my firstborn. I will make David my firstborn. What does that mean? Look at the second line. The highest of kings on the earth. That's what it means. When David rules, there are no other kings on earth that rule like David. In God's mind, he's his firstborn. And you have this affinity for your firstborn. And God, in a sense, sees David in a special status. He calls that status firstborn. Uh, the same words that we have that relate to Jesus. Okay. Now what he does, next when we get to verse 28, he recalls God's promise to David's seed. So that was all about David. Now David see. Look at verse 28. My mercy I will keep with him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. So that he's going to have an endless dynasty. Look at verse 29. His seed also I will make to endure forever. And his throne as the days of heaven. How many days are there in heaven? 
It goes on forever. His throne shall be forever. It'll just keep on going on. And notice it's through his seed, through his descendants. Look at verse 30. If his sons forsake my law, this is exactly what we saw in the second Samuel passage about Solomon. If he does bad things, I will spank him. Remember when we saw that? Well, that's it. Verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, even when they're bad, my loving kindness will not utterly take my, I will not take my utterly, let me read it again. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fall, fail. So he says, even if he's bad, I'll spank him, but David's kingdom and his descendants are going to continue to rule. I'm not going to just take the person's life, and that's going to end David's reign, is basically what he says. Now look at verse 34. My covenant I will not break. God said it. You can take it to the bank. That's what he's saying. My covenant with David I will not break. Nor alter the word that has gone out from, from my lips. In my covenant, there's no asterisk there that you have to look down at the bottom of the page and say, except under these circumstances. I'll never alter the words of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I mean, I will keep the Davidic covenant. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me. Every day you get up, there's the sun. And every day, his throne will continue. Verse 37. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like a faithful witness in the sky. You look up, and there are the stars, and guess what? Those stars were up there when David was up there. When David was ruling, and he looked up at the sky, guess what? He saw the same sun, the same moon, and the same stars that we see today. And God says, that's how long his throne will exist. See, verse 37, that's where we were. Means it's going to exist forever, verse 37. It shall be established forever. Now that's a key word in this section right here. In this section about David's descendants ruling on the throne. I want to show you this. In verse 28, he says, My mercy I will keep with him forever. Look at verse 29. His seed I will make endure forever. Down verse 37. Six. His seed shall endure forever. And now verse 37. It shall be established forever like the moon. So what we have is God promises that David's throne and his descendants will rule forever. So that's this uh, praise that the psalmist has for God because he's a governor covenant-keeping God, and he keeps his word, and let's, my intention is praise him forever. That's what he said. But now we come to the second part of the psalm, and everything changes, because in verse 38, the first word there is, you know, now. Something's changing. Okay? So this is the second section. It goes from verses 38 to 51, and here the psalmist raises his voice 
of concern about the present. In the past, it seemed like God was keeping his word. But what about the present? He starts complaining. So look at verse 38. But, even though you made those promises, but, look at this, you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. And that was the present day king. The present day king. You're furious with your anointed. And now what happens is we think that this is probably written sometime right after the, the reign of King Josiah. Uh, Judah was just going through hard times. And there was one king, Billy Graham calls this king, the wickedest king who ever lived. His name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was so bad, Judah went straight down the tubes. It got to the lowest point ever in its history. I mean, it was bad. Idolatry, every kind of, you know, corruption... Deals with uh, you know pagan empires, and then it, he dies. And a couple kings later, a guy named Josiah comes and brings revival to the land. Gets rid of all the idols. But God says something to Josiah, and here's what He said: Even though you're a great king, you've gotten rid of all the corruption in the land. Still, I'm going to bring down this kingdom because of Manasseh. I'm going to bring him right down. And so, Josiah ends up dying in battle. And his godly reign is gone. And then another king, and another king, and another king comes to Judah. And before long, it's finished. And the Babylonians come right in and just capture the whole kingdom. And it goes down. And so, the psalmist, saying, he's writing sometime, he sees probably Josiah has maybe died, and, and uh, things are going down, and, he, and the handwriting is on the wall, and so he says this in verse 38. But you've cut off and you have abhorred. You've been furious with your anointed. And that was probably Manasseh that he was furious with, and he's just mentioning this. And then verse 39 says, You've renounced the covenant of your servant. Wait a second, God. God said, I will never change. I'll never renounce it. But look what the psalmist said. Well, from all appearances, it looks like you've renounced it. See? You've renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. It looks like you've broken the, 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 your deal with David. Look at verse 40. You've broken down all of his hedges. That's all the protection around Israel and the king. You, you've brought his strongholds to ruin. No protection. The enemies are coming in. Israel can't stand up against the enemies. All who pass by the way plunder him. They take the spoils of battle. They just walk in. Just like when you have riots, you know, people go in and steal televisions. Enemy comes in and just starts taking things out of Israel. They can't, Judah, they can't do anything about it. You know, they're weak. Verse 41, all who pass by plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. That means when they look at Israel, they look at the kingdom of Judah, they laugh. <laughs> Remember how that used to be a great country? Anybody else laughing about some countries today that used to be great countries? <clears throat> You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. Verse 42. That's not supposed to happen. His hand is supposed to be exalted. You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You made all of his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. 
and have not sustained him in battle. The kings now are losing battles. It seems like God's defense is no longer with them. Verse 44, you made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. And the days of his youth have been shortened. Kings who should be ruling righteously and for long times are falling by the wayside. You've covered him with shame. Uh, here's the king. You know, look at this king. He's just ungodly king. And he reigns for a couple of years, gets defeated. Another king comes up and finally everything is going to be over. Just think about that. Say law. So, it seems now that the psalmist stops praising God because even though he was faithful in the past under King David, it doesn't seem like he's faithful to the covenant anymore. And he's complaining. Now, whether God is faithful or not, this is how the psalmist perceives it. So this is followed by a whole series of questions. Look at verse 46. How long, oh God, how long is it going to last? Us losing battles one after another. Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created? All the children of men. Why have you even created us if this is what's going to happen? What man can live and not see death? And the answer is no one. It's like we're, you know, we're all going down the tubes. Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? And the answer is no. I said I'd praise you forever, but guess what? If I'm dead, I can't praise you at all. See? Let's think about this. You know? So you can just see how everything is going haywire. So now what he does in verse 49... He cries out to God for help. Okay? Look what he says in verse 50. Verse 49. First of all, he says this. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? Where's all that former loving kindness, the covenant? Where, where's, where's that mercy that you promised us? Which you swore to David in your truth. So now here's the cry. Remember, Lord the reproach of your servants. How I bear my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. Now, notice he says servants there in verse 50. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. And he's talking about himself and the other people, the many people in line two, who have been faithful to God. But... It doesn't seem like he's being faithful to them. And all they're getting is reproach and persecution and shame. Even though they say, well, we trust in God. And people just laugh at him, you know. And they're saying, we're being reproached. Lord, remember this. Look, Take a look at what's going on here. I say, praise the Lord. And guess what? People go, Lord, you're Lord. <laughs> we're receiving all this reproach. And so he cries out and says, Lord, remember this. Remember the covenant that you made with David. Verse 51. With which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed, which means your king. So, evidently what's happened is Josiah has died and these other kings have come in they've done a bad job and they're losing these battles. And he's saying, you know, what's going on here, Lord? You need to remember that covenant of David. So we know what happens is that uh, 786, 785, 586, 587 BC, 
the great Babylonian Empire sweeps in and just devastates Judah. And then after that, the Persians come in and devastate Babylon and they capture the Jews. And then after that, the great Grecian Empire comes in and captures Persia and captures the Jews. <laughs> and then the Roman Empire comes in and defeats Greece. And the Jews are captured once again. In that whole period, from 586 all the way up to the time of the Roman Empire, there's only 100 years where the Jews are free. Where they were just able to free themselves for 100 years and started their own government, which was totally corrupt. So when Rome comes in, they are defeated once again, and they are captured. And yet, what we see is the psalm ends with a praise. Because he thinks, even though these things are happening, God has promised David, and he'll keep his covenant somehow. How long, O oh Lord? Well, we don't know, but you made a promise. We expect you to intervene. And so he says in verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. After complaining, he says, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. It is so. It is so. Because he believes that even though things are going down the tubes, God will keep his covenant promise to King David. And you know what happens. A man comes on the scene named John the Baptist. And he says, repent. Guess what? The kingdom is at hand. And he points to a man that he baptizes and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he points to Jesus. And he baptizes Jesus. And when he does, God anoints Jesus and says, This is my beloved Son. He is the fulfillment of my covenant with King David. He is the one whose throne will be established forever. It will be through Jesus. And the people are so excited and they just can't wait for Jesus to set up that kingdom and take over David's throne and Israel rule the world and Rome grabs a hold of Jesus by the scuff of the neck and they throw him on a cross and they kill him. <clears throat> and that's that. People are totally devastated. Three days later, God raises him from the dead. Sends him to heaven. Sits on the throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And his kingdom has started and he's beginning to rule. Now only Christians realize this. People out there in the world don't realize that he's ruling. He's ruling invisibly. You can't see him ruling. He's ruling in heaven. He is ruling right now over his people, the church. And when we share the gospel and another one comes into his kingdom, he rules over them. And his kingdom continues to spread. But, the promise that was given to King David is that there would be a throne on earth from which his descendant would rule forever. And so Jesus said, and the, the apostles began to preach, Jesus is coming again. And heaven's going to come down to earth, and God is going to set up his kingdom here on earth. And Jesus Christ is going to rule from the throne of David forever. And today people are saying, well, how long, O Lord? How long is it going to be? We're going through, we're going through an awful lot. It doesn't look like you're keeping any covenant promises to us. How long, O oh Lord? You see? And uh, we don't know exactly when it's going to be, but we know 
that God has made a covenant with King David, and he's going to keep that covenant, and one day Christ is going to come down, and the dead are going to be raised, and we who are alive are going to be changed, and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Heaven will be on earth. And so this uh, passage here really points to the fulfillment of the covenant, which this writer can't see. When this writer takes his last breath, Babylon is taken over. Looks like God isn't going to keep his king, his covenant promise. But he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord forever, even though I don't see it in my lifetime. I know it's going to happen. Well, one day, whoever the psalmist is, when Christ comes, is going to be raised from death. He's going to see this covenant that God made with King David fulfilled literally. And we're going to see it as well. And so, this doxology in verse 52 ends the psalm. And we begin in book number 4, Psalm 90, which is written by a man whom you recognize. Whoever thought this? That Moses wrote one of the psalms. But notice this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that's what we're going to cover next week. And uh, Peggy Smithart is going to give one of her dramatic readings of Psalm 90. Lord, we thank you for uh, this psalm. It does tell us a lot. It tells us how faithful you are. It tells us about a man who lived during a period of great despair and concern because he didn't see any of the covenant promises happening in his day. Oh, he could look back on King David and see them happen, like we can look back on Bible times, but those times don't look like our times. And so he was in despair, and yet he knew by faith that you would keep the covenant. Because you're not a man that you should lie. Your word is true. And so Lord, we, along with the psalmist, believe, whether we see it in our lifetime or not, we believe this covenant will be fulfilled. Christ will come, sit on the throne of David, and rule this earth, and we'll all be part of it. We look for that great day in Christ's name.